tried to lift off and the clock has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go and throttle up. And liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is The Space Shot, episode 411, This Week in Space History, or February 10th through the 23rd. I'm John Mulnix. This week we've got a double header episode. I was in some training last week and was unable to sit down to record. Let's start off today on February 11th. The first mission is STS-82, which lifted off on February 11th, 1997. This was the second Hubble Space Telescope servicing mission. During this nearly 10-day-long flight, astronauts performed five EVAs on the Space Telescope to upgrade various systems. These EVAs ranged from 5 hours and 17 minutes all the way up to 7 hours 27 minutes. The Hubble Space Telescope is designed to be serviced while in orbit, which allows for upgrades, fixes, and multiple service life extensions, as we've seen with the telescope. This stands in stark contrast to the James Webb Space Telescope, which is going to be in a totally different orbit and not upgradable. Fingers crossed that the James Webb Space Telescope doesn't have any issues with its vision after it launches, since it would be impossible to repair that satellite once it's in space. We've talked about the Hubble Space Telescope in greater detail in numerous episodes. Check out episodes 201 and 202 for more specific information on Hubble. The Hubble Space Telescope wouldn't be as famous as it is now if it weren't for these five servicing missions that were conducted between 1993 and 2009. The second shuttle mission I want to talk about for February 11th is STS-99, and it was the final flight of Endeavour that didn't launch to the International Space Station. During this flight, the shuttle carried the Shuttle Radar Topography Mission, which was a joint effort between NASA, the Department of Defense's National Geospace Intelligence Agency, and the U.S. Geological Survey. This instrument collected data on over 80% of Earth's land surface between the latitudes of 60 degrees north and 56 degrees south. The mission amassed terabytes worth of data that gave scientists precise measurements of ground height on a global scale. On February 11, 2010, the Solar Dynamics Observatory was launched, and its mission was to explore how solar variability impacts Earth and near-Earth space. Speaking of missions to study our Sun, the United Launch Alliance successfully launched the Solar Orbiter spacecraft on February 9, 2020. I'll be linking to more on this brand new mission in the show notes, so be sure to check it out. Back to Solar Dynamics Observatory, the website for this mission offers near real-time imagery of our sun, and it is incredible to look at. February 11th is a busy day in space history. The Deep Space Climate Observatory, or DISCOVER mission, was launched on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket on February 11th, 2015. This was the first time that SpaceX launched a satellite into deep space. The point in space where Discover is situated is at the Sun-Earth L1 Lagrangian point, 
which is about 1.5 million kilometers, or 930,000 miles, away from Earth. This distance is more than four times farther away than Earth's moon is to Earth, which is really way out there if you think about it. This spacecraft has a variety of science instruments on board that study the solar wind, and it also offers a unique vantage point where we can look back at Earth. Discover carries the EPIC camera, or Earth Polychromatic Imaging Camera, which images the sunlit parts of Earth's surface. Since this camera can image the entire planet at once, it sends back some absolutely stunning views. I'm linking to a few in the show notes, so check them out. One of the coolest ones is when the moon essentially photobombed Earth, and in this striking picture we see the infamous dark side of the moon. It's not really the dark side, it's just the far side of the moon, but that's a topic for another Medium post that I'm going to be releasing here in the next couple weeks. Be sure to be on the lookout for that article. On February 12, 1961, the Soviet Union launched Venera 1, which was a spacecraft on a mission to Venus. Missions to planets in our solar system are a tricky business. Of the first 10 missions to Venus, only one was a total success. Two missions were lost due to spacecraft failure, while seven others met fiery fates in various launch failures. Venera 1 made its way to within roughly 62,000 miles of the planet's surface. Just for reference, the distance from Earth to the Moon is 238,900 miles. Venera 1 didn't return any scientific data because the radio contact with the probe was lost before the flyby, but the probe did make three successful communications with Earth during its trip to Venus. These brief instances allowed Soviet scientists to gather data on solar wind and cosmic rays along the trajectory of the probe. The Venera 1 probe stood 6 feet 8 inches tall and was a little over 3 feet wide. During the Cold War, the race to develop rocket technologies that were capable of launching large and heavy payloads, and also the most deadly or nuclear weapons, was going ahead at full speed. The American Mariner 1, which was destroyed during launch, weighed in at a featherweight 447 pounds compared to the beefy 1,400-pound Venera 1. The Soviet Union enjoyed a lead in booster technology for a short time, but eventually NASA caught and surpassed the Soviet Union. The race to send a spacecraft to Venus meant that there were numerous attempts, after and before Venera 1, the Soviet Venera 1, American Mariner 1, and a Soviet Venusian lander all ended in failures, eventually from booster or spacecraft malfunctions. The United States conducted a successful flyby of Venus on August 27, 1962. Roughly a decade after that, the Soviet Union made history with the first operational Venusian lander, Venera 7, which landed on the surface of the planet in March of 1972. Venus is a hellish world. The intense pressure and heat on the surface mean that any spacecraft that lands there has only a short time to function before it just succumbs to the elements. The Japanese HALKA, or Highly Advanced Laboratory for Communications and Astronomy satellite, was launched on February 12, 1997. The HALKA satellite was dedicated to very long baseline interferometry radio astronomy, 
Here's a basic rundown of an interferometer. It's formed when there are two or more telescopes in different places that are linked together, effectively creating one larger telescope with an aperture that's the size between the two points or telescopes. Usually telescopes are linked together here on the ground and they're spread hundreds or thousands of miles apart. What made Halka so interesting is that a space-based radio telescope was connected with ground-based dishes. According to NASA, this created a virtual radio telescope with an aperture of 30,000 kilometers, or about 18,641 miles, which is an incredibly long baseline for a radio telescope. The HALCA satellite exceeded its planned mission life and provided eight years of service before being decommissioned in 2005. On February 13, 2012, the European Space Agency launched their Vega rocket for the first time. Vega uses three solid rocket motors for the first three stages of flight, then it relies on a liquid fourth stage to place satellites into the correct orbit. Since its introduction in 2012, the rocket has flown 15 times with one failure. The first satellite carried into orbit by the Vega rocket launched on February 13, 2012 as well. The LARES, or Laser Relativity Satellite, the goal of this satellite was to obtain, quote, important measurements in gravitational physics, general relativity, space geodesy, and geodynamics. We've got a lot to cover for Valentine's Day. The near Shoemaker spacecraft performed an orbital insertion burn that placed it into orbit around Eros on February 14, 2000. The NEAR stands for Near Earth Asteroid Rendezvous, and it's named in part after Gene Shoemaker, the co-discoverer of comet Shoemaker-Levy 9. He was a geologist and astronomer who died in a car crash in 1997. His legacy lived on in the near Shoemaker spacecraft as it continued to explore Eros from orbit from 2000 until 2001. In February 2001, the spacecraft touched down on the surface of Eros, which was the first time that a spacecraft had accomplished that feat. We're going to go back to the early 90s for this one. On February 14, 1990, Voyager 1 took the famous family portrait of our solar system as it rose ever higher above the ecliptic. This unique vantage point above the ecliptic, or the orbital plane of all of the planets in our solar system, meant that Voyager 1 was in a position to capture one of the most striking images of our home. Earth barely appears as nothing more than a pale blue dot set against the vast darkness of space. On or in orbit of our little blue dot is everyone we've ever known. I've talked about Voyager 1 in the past. Check out episodes 104 and 182, among others. I'm also linking to a new article that shows the remastered family portrait that Voyager 1 captured in 1990. The Solar Max satellite was launched on February 14, 1980, and later that year, it began to experience some issues with its attitude control. Four years after launch, Solar Max was repaired by the crew of the Space Shuttle Challenger, and this repair is featured in the IMAX movie The Dream is Alive. If you've ever watched the crazy Russian dashcam videos of car crashes, crazy tank drivers, and just general mayhem, you'll know that those cameras are always running. 
which is a good thing for our next piece of history. On February 15, 2013, some of those cameras caught an astronomical event instead of a car crash. The Chelyabinsk meteor was approximately 20 meters or about 65 feet in diameter. The meteor's size, coupled with its speed, meant that it exploded with a force of between 400 and 500 kilotons when it hit the atmosphere above Russia. Just for some reference, that 4 to 500 kilotons is the equivalent yield to an American W88 thermonuclear warhead. Another just as devastating comparison are the nuclear weapons that were used in World War II on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Those two weapons only had yields between 15 and 20 kilotons. The explosive force of meteorites can be absolutely devastating. The Chelyabinsk meteor airburst over the city, broke windows, and sent a shockwave that even damaged some buildings. The result of this event is that there's been a renewed interest in planetary defense from near-Earth objects. Cataloging these NEOs and providing warnings about potential impacts is critical. On February 17, 1959, the United States launched Vanguard 2, a spacecraft that was designed to study the sunlight that was reflected from Earth's cloud cover. During launch, the third stage of the rocket nudged the Vanguard 2 satellite, causing it to develop a precession, or wobble. According to NASA, quote, The sensor system worked well, indicating in considerable detail the variations of the reflected Earth radiation received by the satellite, but the data proved difficult to reduce because the satellite developed a large precession that caused it to move erratically, shifting its attitude relative to Earth. On February 18, 1930, 24-year-old American astronomer Clyde Tombaugh discovered Pluto. Tombaugh exposed photographic plates with a camera attached to a telescope. He undertook some painstaking work by comparing plates with a tool called a blink comparator. This microscope-like setup allowed astronomers to blink back and forth between two images, which helped them spot an object when it moved. I'm linking to a few articles related to the discovery of Pluto and the legacy of that planet, dare I say. On February 18, 1977, the prototype Space Shuttle Enterprise took to the air for the first time. Enterprise spent this flight attached to the 747, and there were no crew on board the shuttle, but it was an important milestone for the program. The Enterprise took her first free flight on August 12, 1977, with astronauts Fred Hayes and Gordon Fullerton at the controls. This series of approach and landing tests culminated with the final flight of Enterprise on October 26, 1977. Enterprise never flew into space, and the refit that would have been required to make the shuttle space-worthy was too extensive and expensive. I talked about Enterprise in Episodes 90 and 165. Episode 90 is one of my favorite all-time episodes that I've produced, so go back and give it a listen. On February 19, 2017, SpaceX launched the CRS-10 mission to the International Space Station. Before SpaceX could get to CRS-10, there were numerous flights that led the company to that point. 
On December 8, 2010, SpaceX launched a Dragon capsule for the first time as a demonstration for the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services program. Flash forward from December 8, 2010 to today, and earlier this morning, SpaceX just launched the Falcon 9 rocket for the 80th time. Unfortunately, the 50th landing wasn't successful. SpaceX's recent ramp-up for Starlink launches underscores how successful the company has become over the past 10 years. SpaceX is gearing up for the launch of CRS-20, which should take place in early March of 2020. It's remarkable to think how much progress SpaceX has made over the past decade, and it's going to be an even more exciting year with the return of crewed missions to Kennedy Space Center with the launch of Crew Dragon sometime later this year. Speaking of human spaceflight, at 9.47 a.m. Eastern Standard Time on February 20, 1962, American astronaut John Glenn launched into space atop his Mercury Atlas rocket. This was the third flight of Project Mercury and the first, which was an orbital mission. The first two Mercury launches were on the Redstone launch vehicle. The Mercury-Redstone flight sent astronauts Alan Shepard and his Freedom 7 capsule and Virgil Gus Grissom and his Liberty Bell 7 capsule into space on suborbital flights. Last summer, I got to see the Liberty Bell 7 capsule up close while it was at the Spaceworks facility being prepared for its next trip to a museum. One thing that struck me while walking around the spacecraft is how tiny they were. The astronauts really had to cram in there. John Glenn's Friendship 7 spacecraft was placed into orbit around Earth, and during his first space flight, Glenn orbited the Earth three times over a period of 4 hours, 55 minutes, and 23 seconds. If you'd like to know a little bit more about Glenn's other space flight, on the shuttle Discovery, check out episode 168. America's first orbital space flight wasn't without its hiccups. According to NASA, quote, During the flight, only two major problems were encountered. One, a yaw attitude control jet apparently clogged at the end of the first orbit, forcing the astronaut to abandon the automatic control system for the manual electrical fly-by-wire system, and two, a faulty switch in the heat shield circuit indicated that the clamp holding the shield had been prematurely released, a signal later found to be false. That faulty switch for the heat shield meant that the spacecraft re-entered Earth's atmosphere in a manner that no other Mercury capsule ever tried. Eventually, it was decided that the retrofire pack that's usually jettisoned would be kept in place in order to prevent the heat shield from potentially coming off the spacecraft. The extreme speeds of orbital spaceflight meant that Friendship 7 would have burned up had it not had its heat shield underneath John Glenn. Flight controllers felt that doing this could prevent the heat shield from coming off of the spacecraft while it re-entered Earth's atmosphere. While doing the research for these weekly episodes, I came across a PDF I downloaded a couple years ago titled The Results of the First United States Manned Orbital Space Flight. This PDF covers everything from Glenn's workout routine all the way up through re-entry. My favorite part of this PDF is the pilot's flight report. Glenn describes the sensation of entering orbit. 
quote, when the sustainer engine cut off at five minutes, 1.4 seconds, and the acceleration dropped to zero, I had a slight sensation of tumbling forward. There was no doubt when the clamp ring between the Atlas and the Mercury spacecraft fired. There was a loud rapport, and I immediately felt the force of the Pazagrade rockets, which separated the spacecraft from the launch vehicle. Prior to the flight, I had imagined that the acceleration from these three small rockets would be insignificant and that we might fail to sense them entirely, but there is no doubt when they fire. Glenn's assessment of the thruster problem warranted this short and perfect response, quote, It was necessary to control the spacecraft manually for the last two orbits. This requirement introduced no serious problems and actually provided me with an opportunity to demonstrate what a man can do in controlling the spacecraft. However, it limited the time that could be spent on many of the experiments I had hoped to carry out during the flight. I love Glenn's description of starting re-entry over the California coast. Quote, I could hear each rocket fire and could feel the surge as the rockets slowed the spacecraft. Coming out of zero-g condition, the retro rocket firing produced the sensation that I was accelerating back toward Hawaii. This sensation, of course, was an illusion. Re-entering Earth's atmosphere with the retropack still on meant that Glenn could see parts of it breaking off the spacecraft during re-entry. Quote, there was a noise and a bump on the spacecraft. I saw one of the straps that holds the retro rocket package swinging in front of the window. Flaming pieces were breaking off and flying past the spacecraft window. At the time, these observations were of some concern to me because I was not sure what they were. I had assumed that the retro pack had been jettisoned when I saw the strap in front of the window. I thought these flaming pieces might be parts of the heat shield breaking off. We know now, of course that the pieces were from the retro-pack. Glenn and Friendship 7 splashed down safely in the Atlantic Ocean, concluding the first American orbital flight. Project Mercury was a crucial stepping stone because it proved that humans could operate and function in weightlessness while in orbit. I'm going to have to wrap it up quickly here, unfortunately, due to some time constraints. I just want to mention four more mission highlights. On February 21, 1972, the Luna 20 sample return spacecraft touched down on the moon. On February 22, 1996, the space shuttle Columbia lifted off on the STS-75 mission. On February 22, 2018, SpaceX launched the PAS satellite and the first two Starlink satellites. Earlier this morning, on February 17, 2020, SpaceX launched the latest batch of Starlink satellites. I'll be linking to all of the news from this launch and the soft water landing of the Falcon 9 booster in the show notes. And lastly for today, on February 23, 1992, a Delta II rocket launched a GPS Block II satellite. This was one of the first operational global positioning satellites in existence. And that is it for this week. I do have a call-in number. If you'd like to ask a question or leave a comment, just dial 720-772-7988 and leave a message. I'm looking forward to sharing the questions that you may have with all of the listeners. As always, the links to everything we talked about today are in the show notes. 
If you're new to the podcast, I'd appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a review. Reviews in Apple Podcasts help more people find out about the show, and they help make sure it reaches as many people as possible. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.